Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about Save the Internet Act, a bill that was passed earlier this month by the House of Representatives, uh, and the people who are behind it claim that it restores net neutrality in America the way it was in Obama era. Joining me, we have President of Tech Freedom, Baron Zoka. So let's dive in. What is Save the Internet Act? Uh as one supporter of net neutrality recently said, uh, it's not going to pass, but if it were to pass, it would be an administrative lawyer's wet dream because it raises so many hard issues and it's so hard to understand what it actually does for a bill that is so uh, deceptively simple. It's, it's one page, or at least the initial version was one page. It seemed to simply restore the 2015 open internet order, restore net neutrality, uh, repeal what the Republican FCC did. But in fact, it's much more complicated than that. And importantly, it's not what what we and and others across the political spectrum have been pushing for. It doesn't actually codify net neutrality. It simply does this weird kind of uh, what I would call uh, administrative law necromancy. It attempts to revive a dead administrative law order and declare that that thing is now the law. It's very strange. Is that even legally possible? Uh, Probably not. But let's... Let's unpack that a little later. Let me just lay out what actually happened. So this is the uh, response that the House Democrats had promised. They'd said they were going to do something about net neutrality quickly, and they did. This is in congressional time. This is pretty quick. So they had the vote on the House floor on April 9th. The bill passed on a party line vote. There was one Republican who voted for it, and we we can talk about why. Uh, And now this is going to go to the Senate. It's not going to go anywhere. It's um, Mitch McConnell's already said it's not going to go anywhere. Um, but importantly, on a political level, this bill was crafted to look like the Congressional Review Act resolution that the Senate Democrats were able to force a vote on. Because unusually, the CRA has a provision that allows you, if you got 50 signatures in the Senate, you could force a vote. And they forced that vote last year. And that CRA purported to undo the 2017 Restoring Internet Freedom Order, which undid the 2015 Open Internet Order. And so last year's CRA, uh, people said, would therefore restore the 2015 rules. We didn't think that was the case. We can explain why. But as a political matter, that's what Democrats said last year would restore net neutrality. And they've written a bill that looks as much like that as possible, even though it's not actually a, a Congressional Review Act resolution. And they did so basically because they want to be able to say in the Senate, this is what three Senate Republicans voted for last year, and they should vote for this as well. So the bill says that the open internet order by the Tom Wheeler FCC is being restored. Why are they even going with this approach? Well, it's important, again, to note what they're not doing. They're not writing into statute the principles in and the rules in the 2015 open internet order. Or even saying broadband is a title to common carrier service. Congress could do all of those things. Some of those things are things that we've supported. We want to see legislation that that puts into statute the bright line rules and that gives the FCC, or preferably the Federal Trade Commission, a standard by which to judge other cases. Instead of doing that, they focus on the reviving of the order, the, the canceling of last year's order, And on a high level, they're doing it just for that political reason that I mentioned, to try to make this look like last year's Congressional Review Act resolution, which got three Senate Republicans to vote for it. That's the simple answer. 
The more complicated answer is that doing it this way avoids hard questions. They're trying to just, if you will, incorporate by reference everything that the FCC did without having to write their own statute. The 2015 order was 330 pages, of which there were a few pages of rules at the end. Now, those rules have as their interpretive gloss all the other text in the order. So if you say that you're enshrining in legislation the entire order, which is something that Congress never does, this is a totally new approach. I, I know of no precedent for this. What that claims to do is somehow give effect to everything that the order did, right? Which is very messy. There's a reason we don't write laws that way, but it at least allows them to avoid having to um, think about how to write rules that would address issues like, just for example, the rules in the 2015 order said uh, no throttling, but they didn't actually talk about some of the hard cases like team, we talked about on the show in the past, uh, Binge On, the T-Mobile program that allowed you to watch unlimited amounts of video as long as that video was adjusted for the screen size of a phone, which you know you could think of if you wanted to as throttling. And that's what the Electronic Frontier Foundation alleged. But importantly, this was a program that users were made well aware of. It allowed users to opt out, and it benefited users by making sure they could watch as much video as they wanted and making sure the network wasn't overloaded by everyone trying to stream HD video all the time. It's not clear how you would have dealt with that under the rule itself. You had to make recourse to what the text said in the order, which was also unclear. And, and trying see that if you think about things like that, it identifies some hard questions that you would really want to address in legislation, and they just dodged all of those questions here by taking the approach that they did. Sounds to me as the a legislative body that's supposed to be the most thoughtful and careful just p- saw the world as black and white and um, took one approach without really thinking it through. For political reason, mostly since they understood that it's not going to pass Senate. Political reason and their own laziness. It's very sad. It's a, and, and what's sad about this is this now makes it very difficult for a real legislative vehicle to move. There are uh, some Democrats who've expressed an interest. Kristen Sinema in the Senate has already said that she wants to explore a, uh, a compromise bipartisan vehicle. And we hope she will. We've worked with the Internet Society on and many other groups across the political spectrum, including Public Knowledge and the Center for Democracy and Technology, on a, a framework for legislative compromise and how to put these issues into statute. We hope that Senator Sinema and other Democrats will look at that and we'll, we'll, we'll work out something with Republicans in the Senate that not only could pass, but would actually put clear net neutrality rules into statute, which this wouldn't do. Let's go back to the House then. Let's hope that the Senate can figure out a bipartisan approach. The House, uh, when they were going through the process uh, of passing Save the Internet Act, what happened in the committee? Were there any amendments? Yeah, there's only really one important thing that happened at the committee. Now, it's uh, you know heavily uh, stacked in favor of the majority, as the House always is. So uh, Republicans didn't really uh, have much leverage. Um, the one notable thing that happened is that um, Mike Doyle, uh, who was the sponsor of the bill, put forward a friendly amendment that he claimed would address concerns about the bill. Because remember, this debate has been primarily not about net neutrality, but about the FCC's ability to regulate broadband as a common carrier service which would include the power to do lots of things, but most notable would be, would be price controls. The FCC in 2015, in the Open Internet Order, said, don't worry, 
we're not going to do those things. We forbear from the following dozens of statutory provisions in Title II and of FCC rules issued under Title II. So forbearance was supposed to prevent the FCC from doing the things that people were concerned about. And so Doyle said, uh, this amendment, the one that I'm proposing, quote, makes even clearer what authorities the FCC retains and which it does not. Uh, my amendment specifies that Congress is stopping the clock and freezing the forbearances of the 2015 order in place. The amendment, however, leaves in place the FCC's ability to issue new rules to address future bad practices by ISPs that undermine net neutrality, but only under the limited statutory provisions that remain after forbearance. So he, he presented this as, don't worry, we've addressed this. This is just as moderate as what the FCC did, but we're going to make this permanent by writing this in statute. Uh, and this is complete bullshit. And the reason is the problem with the FCC's order in 2015 wasn't merely that the FCC could always change its mind, that you know they can unforbear, which this in theory would stop, but rather that the FCC, yes, they forbore from most of Title II, but they did not forbear from the two provisions that are the core of common carriage regulation. 202A, which is about uh, unjust discrimination, and 201B, which is about having just and reasonable practices. Those provisions are the essence of common carrier regulation. You can forbear from everything else, whether that's by the FCC doing it or Congress doing it. And what you are left with is essentially what the railroads were subject to in 1887. It is the government's ability to decide after the fact that your practices are unjust, unreasonable, or unfair, unfairly discriminatory. And that allows you to do anything. So when he says these are just limited statutory provisions that would just allow the FCC to deal with small things, he either doesn't understand the nature of common carriage regulation or is just misrepresenting it for political purposes. But this is the heart of the debate. The Democrats claimed in 2015 that they'd address this concern. Mike Doyle claimed he had addressed this concern. He has not. There is only one way to address this concern, which is to say that broadband is not a common carrier service. And then to then say, okay, if there are specific things that you are concerned about, let's, let's create clear, specific statutory authority to deal with those. What was the fate of this amendment? It failed. Uh, it got a lot of Democrats voting against it because they don't want to limit the FCC's authority at all. They want the FCC to regulate prices. In 2015, we were told, don't worry, we're never going to regulate prices. Now most Democrats are saying very openly, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have said this very openly, they want to regulate prices. And so for a variety of reasons, this amendment failed. What went to the House floor, uh, therefore, didn't say anything about this, it leaves open what the bill actually would do. Um, but at a minimum, even if it did lock in forbearance, it, it still doesn't solve the problem because it leaves open those powers. So on the floor, there were a bunch of amendments offered. There was only one Republican amendment accepted. And that, and that simply required the FCC to list the 700 rules that would be permanently foreborn should the bill become a law. And that, that amendment also kind of misses the point for basically the same reason, which is you can take off the books, if you will, the rule that says you have to submit your price list, for example, and you can still have the FCC regulating prices if only on a case-by-case -case basis. So the mechanisms of price regulation, like the, the old tariffing system, are not the most important thing. The agency can still retain the ability to set prices under the core provision of the statute. So both sides really miss the point here. So let's imagine Mitch McConnell has a change of heart and put Save Internet Act to a vote, and let's say some Republican senators have a change of heart, and it passes. 
what legal and practical challenges would it bring to the table? Well, uh, just to answer your, your, the premise of your question, it is possible that the three senators who voted for the, the CRA amendment last time would vote for this. Uh, I hope that they will understand how complicated this is and, and the new problems that this would raise. Um, but they may not, as you point out. And, uh, and so if you want to start to understand how problematic this bill is, don't take my word for this. Uh, look at Dan Deacon, for example, law professor who's um, we've disagreed with on, on most of the uh, aspects of this issue. Very, very enthusiastic about the need for the FCC to regulate and yet um, calls this bill, uh, as I said earlier, uh, an administrative lawyer's dream and notes that once you drill into the details that this bill becomes a, a minefield of uh, legal issues uh, and says, uh, for example, that anyone who's read a few FCC orders knows that they contain sprawling discussions of various issues, often resembling a judicial opinion more than a code of law. The rules that are to be codified as federal uh, regulations from the code of federal regulations are then appended to the order itself. That's how orders work. The Save the Internet Act does not return the CFR to its pre-Trump era of being. It protects on a permanent basis, quote, the rules and interpretations set forth in the order itself. Which parts of the order this effectively codifies and which it doesn't is, to say the least, not self-evident. No one really knows what the FCC could do here. And this creates problems, not just from my perspective, but there are uh, potentially problems for people on the other side, where, like the thing that I just mentioned, the fact that the tariffing provision of Title II is foreborn from. So in principle, the FCC is not supposed to be requiring you to file your price lists with the FCC as tariffs. Well, the FCC still has the power to decide whether your prices are just and reasonable. And at some point, what they do might look like a violation of that. It's not clear. So Dan identifies a bunch of these problems about the practicality. So that, that's one way to look at this. We have a more fundamental set of concerns. And we, we laid these out in a piece that we'll put in the show notes. I don't think that this is even a valid exercise of Congress's authority. So I want to stipulate up front, Congress can write a law to say whatever it wants, really. Um, you know, they can put words in statute. They could say that broadband's a Title II service. We could fight over whether that's a First Amendment problem and there may be other problems that that creates. But there are a bunch of problems that would not be presented if they just did this directly. But because they're doing this indirectly, they're trying to revive these this, this dead order it raises some fundamental problems, the same fundamental problems that the CRA raised. Which, and we, we pointed these out then, which is that the CRA is a way for Congress to effectively take back legislative power that it's delegated to an agency. So if an agency writes a rule uh, under the CRA, Congress can come around later and say, that rule, we're going to cancel that rule. We're, we're taking that back. And we're going to stop you from redoing it. So we're going to decide whether that's going to happen again. Right? That's that is a way for Congress to delegate and then undelegate legislative authority. But that speaks to a fundamental distinction in administrative law between rules, which are basically forms of legislation, and orders, which are essentially adjudicatory. They're essentially judicial in nature. So, for example, an order is you know a litigation between two parties, a merger review, but also fights over what a statute means. And fundamentally here, if you look carefully at what the FCC did in 2015 when it said that broadband was a Title II common carrier service and what it did in 2017 when it said the opposite, we think those are fundamentally orders. They're fundamentally adjudicatory. And, and the reason you know that is that those are things that could have been 
uh, retrospective. The FCC chose not to make those decisions retrospective for fairness reasons. But in principle, they were looking at the statute and interpreting it in the same way that courts would have. And if that's what they were doing, and we think it is, those are orders and not rules. And those cannot be subject to the CRA, and they can't be subject to legislation like this because Congress can no more write a law that says we reverse that order, that adjudicatory decision, then Congress could write a law that said, in that case that, that just turned out a certain way, we are overruling that order. That's the problem. And that's very different from writing a new statute that says we're going to write a new law that just fixes that. So I think this runs into fundamental separation of powers concerns. And there was essentially no discussion about this in the process. Everyone just assumed that this three-page bill that basically had three sentences would just do what it said. And I just don't think that's even true. This seems like a very complicated, um, tangled issue that admin lawyers are going to fight over if it ever actually somehow made it through Senate and was signed by the current president. Do you think this law would survive the challenges in courts if it ever made it to the courts? Because I keep pushing you. I keep saying, okay, what if it passes the Senate? Now I'm saying, what if it passes, gets signed into the law, there's a challenge in the courts? What happens? The, The honest answer is no one knows. Uh, Dan and I have both looked at this. We both have our own concerns. Uh, I, I am very skeptical that it would pass muster. And my main point is that it, if it did fail, it would fail for totally avoidable reasons. There's just, if you're concerned about net neutrality, you don't want to have your law fail for these reasons. You just want a nice, clean law that writes in the rules and addresses the agency's authority in statute in words that get put into the United States Code. This bill does not do that. There is nothing here that you could put into the United States Code. It's just not legislation. Democrats should really come talk to you. I think you can help them. This is very helpful for any Democratic staffers out there or anyone who, you know, wants net neutrality if through Title II kind of even structure. Through whatever structure, even if they don't agree with us about Title II. This is just not the right way to go about legislating. Well, let's uh, address one thing. This seems to be a very separated by party lines issue right now, at least in the House. And there was one Republican member, Bill Posey from Florida, who voted with the Democrats on Save the Internet Act. What was his explanation? And why do you think that explanation shouldn't fly? Yeah, uh, uh, we didn't talk to his office. Some people did. And they said that he told them that um, Jesus Christ himself couldn't stop him from voting for this. So I I don't know what that means. But the only substantive concern that he expressed was uh, about emergency responders. He's from Florida. And I think he was concerned about what could happen in emergencies and in particular about customers getting billed when their service went out after the emergency. I I think that was those were his concerns. We looked into a lot of this uh, last summer when the allegation was made that Verizon was throttling firefighters in Santa Clara County. We'll put this in our show notes as well. Um, that, that to me, is a, a huge red herring. What happened in that particular case was not, was not even covered by the, the FCC's rules. What, what happened basically is that the fire department bought the wrong service plan. We don't need to rehash all the details. We did an entire show on that. I'll just say this. If that's the concern, there are other ways to address it than by making broadband a Title II service. Um, And that's why really the right answer here is to do what Senator Bill Nelson, a Florida Democrat, 
called four years ago, which was a new title. He called it Title X, be an unknown, uncertain title in the Communications Act that would address things like public safety. And, and that's really what Senator Cinema should be focused on, what anyone who wants to write a new bill should, should really uh, focus on. And I, I will just note that it is, there is a mix of public safety concerns and also you could imagine concerns about billing, the specific concern that he raised. Sure. But that's not an argument for giving the FCC a blank check to do whatever it wants, which is what common carriage regulation is. It Again, it is the ability for the government to second guess every single aspect of your business model, every price you charge, how you deploy your service. We need to essentially identify the, the specific problems, write targeted fixes for those instead of just uh, trusting the FCC to do whatever it wants. Overall, I would say that if any of our listeners care about net neutrality and don't want to make admin lawyers richer, they should really uh, encourage whatever representatives they have and decision makers they have to come to the table because they are groups and people, center of right, who maybe won't agree on every single issue, but are willing to work on a bipartisan solution. I know Barron personally has worked on this issue for 11 years, and he would love to move on. I got better things to do. And again, would refer you to the Internet Society. It's the, the world's largest uh, grassroots organization of Internet users. They put a lot of time in convening mu- multiple stakeholders here to, to, to talk about compromise. Go read their proposal. It, it lays out the broad contours. It does not come to a specific recommendation about what you do about Title II service because that's, that's this irreconcilable difference between some people in the room. But it at least identifies that you have to address that question and you can't, you can't just dodge these questions by trying to revive a dead order. And you mentioned this, I think, earlier, the Internet Society process was multi-stakeholder and every political, main political view in America was represented. Am I correct? Yeah, it's, it was you know, us and public knowledge and CDT, and we didn't agree on everything, but there was a lot of agreement there. And on the core issues, we've always said 90% of this, 95% of this is not controversial. It's ultimately about the FCC's authority, and, and some, some very marginal issues that I think can be worked out. And it's just, it's unfortunate that um, people are playing politics with this issue. They, Democrats are convinced that they won the House by talking about net neutrality, and they want to use this as an election issue. And I just think it's really unfortunate that, um, that we're now probably going to miss another opportunity to resolve this issue. And unfortunately, we'll probably look back on this in four years and think, we had a window then, just as we had a window in 2010, when Republicans blew it, because they thought they'd be in a better position to negotiate after the election. Well, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people are tired of this political football. And what they can take away from our episode is that Save Internet Act does not restore net neutrality rules. It's a zombie law that yeah. is going to create uh, a lot of um, administrative law problems and litigation and not truly be effective in a way that any other bill can be effective, a bill that actually lays out the rules and the bright lines that companies can't cross. At a minimum, this law is so unclear that the FCC would not get the deference that that it normally gets in interpreting laws. Uh, It's just not a clear enactment of legislation by Congress. So again, if you're in favor of net neutrality, this is just not the solution for you. Even if you totally disagree with us about Title II and you want a bill, that just says broadband's a Title II service. Even so, this is not the bill for you. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. 
Please leave us a review so others can find the show. If you want Baron to speak in French and do a whole episode in French, we can arrange that. Um, please follow Tech uh, Freedom. Oui, oui. Please follow Tech Freedom on Twitter, Facebook, and any other major platform at Tech Freedom. And follow us on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Merci. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.